I'm Kelly Davis. You're listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. This is Episode 5, Loft at Sea. In our last episode, we heard stories of Sunburn out on the road. This is how Chris Corsano described touring. Central tour thing is like from the highest highs to the next day being like just cold, cramped in a van with 12 other people, just kind of miserable. (laughs) Yeah. So the back and forth, like you could never really get too secure in how tour was going, but um, there was enough, you know, crazy people around that you'd at least be entertained. And it sounded like there was no shortage of entertaining chaos, both on stage and off. About it. They didn't know I was in the band. They were like, oh, did you see that Animal Collective show where Sunburn opened? There was like a guy who was like 90 on stage wearing a fucking mask going crazy. It was just like fucked up. Phil <laughs> rubbed the hamburger all over his face and then he said, fancy a fight. And there was a full moon and Phil just started howling. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Then I had to go up to the hotel room with him. I got in the bed and we turned off the light. It was pitch blackness and I just heard, <laughs> I was like, oh. And then the rest of the tour was fine. Nothing. 12 members on stage. John pulled two more people up from the audience. Two dogs on stage, stepping on pedals, changing the, 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 the sound. Even when I asked Rob Thomas about a tour where everything went well, the story that came out was about the inevitable bumps in the road. In this episode, we'll wrap up the semi-chronological telling of the Sunburn Hand of the Man story, and then pivot to explore some of the band's many artistic collaborators. But first, let me bring in my special guest, Allison Hussey. Hey, Allison, how are you? Uh, You Yeah, having fun. Yeah, ready Ready to talk about Sunburn. Yeah, cool. Okay, so uh, in the last episode, we heard all about tour, Mm -hmm. and you were asking about... Was it all perfect and rosy and wonderful? And did it go on forever? I mean, those weren't your words, but. Yeah, I think I was wondering, like, even the best of car trips can still be a pretty difficult car trip. And I'm sure that when you're on the road for weeks at a time, staying up late and, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, my God, I sound like I'm a thousand years old. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, like when you're out for weeks at a time, kind of not really on a normal schedule of eating or sleeping or any really any kind of normal activity. I think that people who kind of are away from the music world just forget that that takes a real toll on your body. Uh, And I'm wondering, like, at the period where they were kind of like winding down out of all of this touring, like what? What kind of shape were they in? Not necessarily like physically, but what was kind of the state of the band by this point? That's a great question. And I'll start by noting how many times I heard people refer to Sunburn as amoeba-like while recording for this podcast. During the seven-year period we heard about in the last episode, upwards to 30 different people cycled in and out of actively playing in the band. And I think there was a lot of variability in what caused people to come and go. For many of them... Playing in Sunburn met a need for a period of time, and then other priorities took precedence. Some were starting families, and others took advantage of new opportunities. Some people just fell out of the groove. I don't think there's a singular answer to your question, but I will work on weaving some of these themes in as I can during today's episode. But to keep us moving, what kinds of questions do you have at this point? Yeah, was there anything else that kind of stood out from this time period that's maybe a little more personal? Like, did you talk to anybody about feeling burnt out at all? Yes, that's great. I can answer that question and and I can start to explore some of your initial uh, more nuanced questions. Before we get to burnout, let's first hear about the more personal impact that being on tour had for some of the band members. We'll start with Phil Franklin. As we've heard in previous episodes, Phil is a highly accomplished agent of chaos. The first time I recorded with Phil, there was a thread of remorse, I think, where he would say something like, there's a lot of stuff that happened that I don't really remember. Because the rest of the time I was either just too wasted 
too drunk, um, so I missed out. Shortly after concluding our first call, I got an email from him explaining that those comments come from his process of getting sober. I wanted to hear more about this, so we set up another call. So going out in the world with other people and, you know, in a van, traveling for six weeks, you don't want to put all that work that everybody is doing in harm's way. And, you know, when you're on tour, there's plenty of drinking, there's plenty of other stuff that goes on backstage and after the show, before the show. Everyone's pretty open-minded and everybody is pretty forgiving when somebody, like, overdoes it. Um, and it's not like you're going to get kicked out of the band, but there's definitely been times when, you know, you push it, you push it a little too far and you might do something or say something or act a certain way that you regret the next morning. And, you know, you're a band, you, you get through that. There's plenty of times when it's come to, you know, yelling and screaming and people just getting fed up and getting ready to just get on a plane the next morning and leave the tour. And you work through that stuff. And, you know, I maybe talk and think about these things a little bit too much, you know, and remember, you're like, oh, you know, discussing drinking or whatever, alcohol. And it's like, I think I make a bigger deal of it than it actually is. And that, you know, I don't want to come across like, like I said in here and like dwelling on this stuff, you know. Whatever, being sober is like, you know, it's coming up on four years. It's it's still a new thing for me, so. There's another poignant story that floated out during my conversation with Taylor Richardson. He told me about one tour that routed through his hometown of Atlanta. I remember it was, because uh, we went down to Atlanta, and, and I remember my dad showed up. My parents had separated for years, oh, wow. and my dad died like six months later. Oh, wow. But he got to see Sunburn. And it was funny because like during that set, it was like we'd been we'd been playing for like the past two weeks, night to night to night to night. So we, we kind of phoned that one in and like we're all walking around with like drum cases on our heads and shit. And my father is like kind of a square. But I will say to his defense, he gave me the first cassette he gave me when I was like a little kid with Jimi Hendrix, like Electric Ladyland. So like he but he didn't really keep up with music. He just but he was very supportive of me being a musician. Um, but I just didn't see him a lot. Like he was just kind of, you know, in and out. But he showed up to our show and I was blown away. And like we just did the, we had the most fucked up performance, you know, just like Ron's like got like a, a, a horse head on, you know, just just like tons of weird occult shit. And my dad was like, I really liked it. I was like what? And he, he was talking to Ron for like hours and and like it was just hilarious and like that's actually the last time i saw my father Wow. yeah so that was really important to me yeah so yeah it was on that same tour but that was cool that he actually got to see what i was into even though it was so fucking bizarre i wish we could have like at least like played a tim buckley cover like we had before on the tour but you know but it was cool it It seems like you that that got you some like I don't know, validation feels... It, feels good. Yeah. 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 It, it was touching, you know, yeah. and it was cool to, like, to introduce my family, like, to the band, in a sense, like, because it's, like, where I came from, you know, because living in Massachusetts, like, I'm always seeing, you know, where they came from and mm-hmm. and things, like, about Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And Massachusetts is a big part of my life, too, but, you know, it was cool just to have that that um that part of my life come into the to the mix and like to have that like as as some sort of closure too almost everyone i've spoken with has brought up rob thomas's skill for extemporaneous rants or poetry or you name it vocalizations from the stage several of the band members brought up the no way out tour as a time when rob fully transformed into a character called the drifter on stage off stage in the van, he just became this other person and stayed like that for quite some time. 
I wanted to ask Rob where the impulse comes from that feeds this creative spark. So I started with asking about the drifter and got this somewhat unexpected answer. Basically, that was uh, sort of a psychic snap when I did that shit because uh, uh, we were on tour and whilst on tour, I'd been in a relationship with someone for a few years and that fell apart while we were on the road and that kind of challenged me psychologically to a point where I just went off the rails a bit uh, and 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 just uh, in order to uh, bypass or circumvent my uh, grief and anger or whatever, I just acted like this other person for a while. And I got up on stage and did it. And uh, and uh, so that was what happened there. But it wasn't that wasn't even so much a, a shtick as more of a a, uh, I don't know, a collapse <laughs> that I, I used to transform into something else to keep me going. Uh, What's but, it like having that brought back up then? Oh, no, it's interesting to think about. I cringe a little bit because I, like, I'm listening. I'm like, yes, there were many times when I would get up on stage and talk for a long time. And I probably made the audience as uncomfortable as I was personally. So I was sort of sharing the misery transcendentally, perhaps. I don't know. But, uh, and, you know, certain drugs can also help uh, promote uh, talkative uh, nonsense. And uh, so there was some of that going on, too. But, um, that, but uh, yeah, I have always had the ability. I, I perhaps I have a little more. It's easier for me to do it hanging out with the friends or on, even on stage than it is in an interview. I always get uncomfortable in interviews. And I always tend to say something ridiculous that I hor- hor- horribly regret every time. I, every time. Uh, it doesn't matter. I feel like, oh, this one's be great. And then I, something comes out. I was like, I cannot believe I said that. Why did I say that? But uh, so, yeah, I have the ability to extemporize uh, and, 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 uh, and wax lyrically even. But uh, other times I... I, it's like pulling teeth <laughs> in the interviews. So not, no pressure, no, no. I think just the reality of going on tour posed mental health challenges for almost everyone I spoke with. Leaving your comfort zone, uncertainty from night to night about how a show will go, and if you'll even have a bed to sleep in. Michael Kay gave a particularly compelling description of this constant struggle. I'm early to bed even still on the tours and stuff, so I did miss the uh, the the mummy Phil Franklin in the bar, but I've been hearing that story forever, that fancy fight, <laughs> and it just didn't stop. So, so I had that too. I mean, just the excitement of like going on tour and being in a band. Then next, you know, I'm on records and I'm in, on tour and I'm on stage and there's a lot of people and I'm traveling with these people and I'm fucking scared of everything. Probably, <laughs> I don't know. I lived through it. Uh, I laughed a lot and we had a lot of fun, but it was probably all that energy for me. I wonder was just like panic. (laughs) So again, I don't think there was a single thing that caused this period of touring to come to an end. Just the logistics of going on tour can be exhausting. And I'm sure the free flowing aspect of the band presented a unique challenge. Here's Rob Thomas. I, I actually did get burned out on touring. We did so many tours between 2004 and eight really long, you know, six to eight week tours of Europe and the United States. And that's long and hard for anybody, even if you were making money, even if you were in a band that people liked a lot, (laughs) even if you were in a band that played songs that you knew you were going to play every night. But then we had the added element of it being difficult music and abstract uh, expressionism with and we tried to always involve um, the other thing the not sort of the non-musical sort of performative element to the music which as a, as a way of keeping things interesting both for the audience and the band and uh, this other aspect that doesn't come across on the records except for the sound of it you can you kind of hear if you hear live recordings you go like, what the hell is that sound and you if you're there in the room, you realize it's a guy dragging a large branch across from the back of the club up to the front and ring, wrapping it up in bells or whatever, that type of stuff. But to come up with that type of energy and those ideas and that performance stuff is extra taxing. And uh, it was just draining. I think John, too, at the end at the end of that period, we just toured so much. I was, I was burned out. I was like, I can't. I don't want to get in the van again at this point. So the touring finally ground to a halt. I asked John Maloney if he had a similar experience. In the tank, maybe I got burnt down on sunburn too. Maybe I just got burnt down on, you know, maintaining it. 
and keeping it going. And I just got into other things pretty hardcore and got kind of unfocused on it. But it was always there, it never went away. Okay, Allison, there's some thoughts about the strain and the emotional impact of being out on tour. Or maybe I should say tour, because depending on who you ask, it's all just been one long permanent tour. So, I don't know, where where do we go next? What do you want to know more about? Yeah, I don't know. So, like, what, after, like, after this tour kind of wound down, like, what happened? Did they, were there kind of plans to start working on new like different kinds of material or did they want to regroup or did they never want to look at each other again like what where was everybody everybody is a little tricky i heard over and over that sunburn isn't really a fixed thing take for instance that no way out tour where the lineup just constantly changed with the exception of one member that's a through line Mm -hmm. like the the members of the band is are completely different when they go from Boston across to to California, down California, a different band, across from California, a different band, up the East Coast, a different band. It's like the sunburned ship of, what is it? It's the ship of Theseus, <laughs> where it's like, yeah. Yeah. What's the band when all the parts change? Yeah. I, I don't know if sunburn can exist without John Maloney and Rob Thomas, but I do know that it can't exist as just John Maloney and Rob Thomas. I mean... They use a different name, clear people, when it's just the two of them. Interesting. I I think the truest version of this might be the band in constant flux. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. That's yeah. Wild. Yeah. It's it's totally wild. And so I think I think it's 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 okay if it doesn't necessarily make a straight line because I don't think it's a straight line for even them. Yeah. What what other questions do you have? Um. Yeah. So I know the band never really kind of went like capital letters on hiatus the way that some bands really do but there were kind of a few years where they were not really active in the ways that they kind of once had been um what was like what was going on during that time and i guess like could you maybe put a fence around like when were kind of some of the quieter years now to loop back to your initial question all the individuals that we are hearing from we're just hearing a tiny fragment of their individual life stories and those fragments come together to form this bigger story that we're hearing about. But they all have their own lives. They all go on and do all kinds of other things. Like, I mean, that, that's common sense, right? That's logical. But it, it bears saying, especially when you've got this many people and the entity is this free-flowing and free-formed, I think that what ends up happening is that people just are living their lives. And so, and Sunburn is just a part of that. Okay. And priorities shift and change over time. Yeah. And so it could be really easy to get lost in a bunch of individual, the like details from a bunch of individual stories. Mm-hmm. So what I think I'm going to try to do is I can answer parts of your question, but I want to keep the focus on the unit of the band and not get lost in that maze of stories. Okay. So with that in mind, what are the questions do you have? Yeah, kind of connected to that, you know, talking about like shifting and drifting and life changes. Um the band eventually kind of drifted over to Western Massachusetts from Boston. How did that change happen? Yeah, I can answer that. <laughs> Anything else I should think about? Yeah, I think I've also sort of noticed that the band have sort of like been stirring back into activity a bit more in recent years. Like I know that there's um, like the three lobe reissue and like some new material that they've put out um yeah so like they you know they're the machinery seems to be moving again but like what's what's going on there how'd that happen that's yeah that's a great question and one that i can wrap up with in this next segment so does that sound good great At the end of the last segment, we heard John Maloney say, I've just gotten into other things pretty hardcore and got kind of unfocused on it. 
I asked John if he could tell me a bit more about what some of those other things were. At the time, at that time, we were just about to put like some records out on Static Peace, and then uh, I was, I was, I was starting to play with Thurston in 2007 around that time. Now that little clip, that's the beginning of what ended up being just like a slew of stories that stretched out across multiple conversations. And honestly, that little clip could just be a pilot episode of an entire other podcast about the many lives of John Maloney. He's played with Thurston Moore, MBNEE, Six Organs of Admittance, Howlin' Rain, Boredoms. That's just to name a few. He's also done tour management and has worked with artists like Steve Gunn. These days he works with Dinosaur Jr. But I want to keep the sunburn story moving forward. So what you need to know is that between about 2008 and 2011, John moved first from Boston to New York City. And then he floated back and forth between New York and Western Massachusetts and eventually settled out in Western Massachusetts. He stayed super busy with all these other bands and took advantage of one opportunity after another. I asked John if during this period of time, if like Sunburn was just done or, or, or what was happening. I never stopped. I just was like not really trying to do anything. You know, none of us were trying to do anything with it. We just had it. And it wasn't, it wasn't dead in the water. It was just not really doing much besides little local things and, you know, jams here and there. So the band wasn't done. It just wasn't active. Here are a couple of clips from Rob Thomas and John Maloney. He moved out and uh, I had a brief period where I felt kind of bad about my own musical ability or something. I wasn't into it for a few years. Uh, and I, I slowly started playing again with some people in Boston that kind of got me back into the world. And I would do shows with Sunburn when I could. But there's always, you know, there was a, a long period where I still lived in Boston, but John had was out here for about seven or eight years before I moved out here. And he had uh, all different lineups going on in that uh, time frame. And I played when I could, but it wasn't all that much. Yeah, you know, we never stopped hanging out. That's never that never stopped. It just stopped touring. Okay. And Did you keep playing like prat like? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. we we jam. We, yeah, we've been jamming nonstop. Yeah. Um, frequency of jamming it was probably a little less between two thousand like eleven and the time Rob moved here, or or there'd be jams that were like some like quote unquote sunburn, but there'd be maybe one or two original guys in the room with like seven or eight other people yeah you know and that that was a weird weird time i asked john if it was bad weirdness or if there were any positives about that time it had always been fun like one of those guys would always be around yeah be the rob or ron or paul paul was around for pretty 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 much for a long time 14 16 years 14 years and uh chad come in and out and then um, Conrad would always be around. Yeah. Okay. So somebody would be around. It's just it's just the focus was different. We weren't we weren't concentrating on it anymore. We're just like keeping it rolling. Yeah. And just jamming with with friends. Yeah. And different okay. friends in different spots around here. And you recall that Conrad Capistran had moved out to Western Massachusetts years earlier. Here's how he remembered the period of time after John Maloney moved out to that area. Uh, and when he moved here, he started having sunburn happen again. Rob wasn't part of it, um, but there were a lo- there were a number of sunburn gigs that were like intense freakout, freeform things. You can find some of these intense freakouts in the sunburn catalog. One of my favorites from that period of time is called "Clowns in Jail." As you can hear, the track features in an intense performance from Shannon Ketch. I asked him what he remembered from that performance. I'm not even sure where that, how that came out, you know. I'm not sure what the, you know, I can't really recall why that, you know, 
I went there vocally or what the whole thing is about because I have no idea. But I, the thing is, is that for better or for worse, I tend to get fucked up and and then, you know, it's a better, sometimes it's a better place for me to, you know, enter a situation doing vocals. And I'm, I'm, I could guarantee you that I was, there was something I was reacting to in that, in that, yeah. in that moment. I mean, John was bringing like incredible acts there and it was really intense. I remember doing that set and then some guy, like sort of a down and out guy coming to me and up to me and being like, oh my God, this is it. You know, so I have a feeling that what, you know, I was channeling is that Greenfield can be super dark. And it's like that club is in the downstairs back on an alley street. It's. And there was a lot going, a lot, a lot going on, at the time that was like, not so easy to uh, process. I, it just like, the band was bigger. There was like, like numbers wise. Yeah, a number of people yeah. coming in and coming out, and like not, yeah. not easy to really figure out. Like, you know, I think with the sixth unit, it's like, it's easier to figure out like what we could potentially kind of thematically do in that sense there was nothing so yeah so just shatter the glass you know yeah in the end it sounds like this period of time wasn't particularly sustainable i asked john maloney if the difficulty was in how the music happened or if it had more to do with the interpersonal relationships or lack thereof between the people who were involved during this shatter the glass freakout period and he said it was more about relationships and they're important yeah those are important and, and it's been nice to maintain them sometimes you you know sometimes you don't maintain relationships or you get into relationships with people who um you don't realize it at the time but you you know you just, it's just not an ideal relationship it's just kind of one-sided and for a long time there was a lot of that going on and since the reset in 2018-19 it's just been really focusing on why am I, you know, why am I hanging around with these people being, you know, playing, you know, getting involved in projects with people, for, you know, that why am I doing this stuff? I could just be like reading a book. I could be working on sunburn stuff. I could be hanging out with, let's just go hang out with Conrad or Rob and just go to the house. You know, like I was just, I felt like I was, I was kind of lost for a while mentally and unfocused. I was trying to do too much. I was trying to please everybody. And, and that's, and I was just like, I'm just going to focus on Sunburn. Like, what am I doing? It sounds like around the time John decided to refocus on Sunburn, Rob Thomas and his wife decided to move out to Western Massachusetts. And that seemed to start a chain of events that gets us up to today. This is how Conrad Capistran described this shift. Now that Rob, when Rob moved out here and started playing again, and Sunburn started happening on a regular basis, and it's this core group of people um, there are not a lot of people that get invited occasionally, but, um, you know, the, 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 we play together every week and, you know, there's a common language and, and it's like when they first started, like, I think John and Rob, they were in their twenties, you know, at this point they played music long enough. They know how to listen more. You know, we don't, none of us have that, like, like that, that like youthful, like, energy like it like we're not aggressive like we might have been when we were younger not physically aggressive i mean but like musically assertive similar to john maloney taylor richardson also moved around and got involved with other projects roughly between 2008 and 2015 similar to others that i spoke with taylor also ended up out in the western massachusetts area and he started playing with the band after the reset that conrad just described I honestly feel like now we're making like the best music we've we've ever made. Like the stuff we've been doing in the past year, it took a lot to get to this level of like focus. I don't think we could necessarily have a bad show, like unless the sound was bad. Like there's this level of like telepathy that's like it's it's absolutely insane. It, it, like I've never had like a musical experience like that in my life i mean maybe it's like because we're in such close quarters in here when we play mm -hmm. but it maybe it's because i've been playing with them for so long and uh yeah 
it's it's really cool. I think the stuff we're doing now is like the best music I've ever played. I'm happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't think about that like 25 years into like a band, you know, like because like some of my favorite bands like like Channel Giant, yeah. like if I if I was gonna listen to one of their records 25 years in, I wouldn't think it would be their their top notch stuff, but. I think it also has to do with the rotating membership or just like the focus of the band. Like I feel like we're right now like in a, like a band of like very technical musicians, which has been not, which wasn't necessarily always the case. You know, there's always been like, like a group, like freak out kind of vibe. But like now it's like a bunch of like people that are like very in tune to like just trying to like, elevate themselves like in musicianship and like that's what's important to all of us right now i think and i think that neatly sums up a lot of the comments that i heard from most of the people that i talk with who are currently playing in the band they're all really happy with it they're having a great time they feel like they're listening to each other and making some wild music the thing that continues to stand out the most to me about sunburn is the relationships I think that this band might be more about, well, I think it's as much about the relationships between the members as it is about the making of music. Remember, this is a band of childhood friends, cousins, musical mentors, and couples. And this brings us to one last person that we need to more fully meet. We heard from Sarah Gibbons in our first episode. She updated the artwork for the band's reissue of the Headdress album. Sarah also plays in Sunburn, and I think her story is emblematic of how these personal relationships form the bedrock of this band. Sarah told me that from the time she was a child until early adulthood, she was playing music. But then in college, she started to follow a path into a world more defined by creative writing. Then, a few years ago, as part of a broader reassessment of her life, Sarah realized that she was, was missing music. And this community of being among musicians that I had in my when I was younger and in my 20s and living in New York. But that was a huge problem for me, like personally, like it was it was something that was really lacking in my life. And it made me really sad. And so as things started shifting in her life, she began seeking ways to reengage with music. It was sort of right around the time that John had acquired uh, a bar in Greenfield, Massachusetts, the root cellar, it was called at the time. And because he has the Rolodex he has, he was booking all of these amazing shows at this like tiny little literal like hole in the ground venue. It was a basement venue. And uh, so I started going to some shows there and that's how I met John. So I was like, hey, you need a bartender? I know how to bartend. And the rest is history. Um, so that's how John and I met. And the first, I mean, I'd heard about Sunburned. I kind of knew who John was, like, via knowing who Thurston Moore was, but wasn't, like, a fan per se. Um, I'd heard Sunburned over the years and never had absorbed it enough to really understand it. The first time I saw them live was at the Root Cellar. And I was like, oh, I mean, I think my entree into Sunburned is more my how my relationship with John evolved or my friendship with John evolved and how like open and generous of a person he is um even though he doesn't maybe come off that way immediately to people he seems maybe a little bit intimidating I think he immediately recognized that none of that shit intimidated me and was intrigued by that because it really didn't like I was just like you are a dude you just you're just like a guy from Boston. I was able to just like see through all of those labels that I think he feels self-conscious about sometimes, but also is very proud of at the same time, I would note. And probably is more proud of them than self-conscious about them. But I also got to know John while get while like I saw him play, I saw him do his thing musically. Um and and doing and you know his thing musically is sunburned so they're sort of intertwined in that way so that's how sarah met john maloney i wanted to know about how her relationship with john and then sunburn hand of the man developed i think i became like the den mother first i have this big house i think that so 
first of like how I really became involved in Sunburned beyond my relationship with John is Sunburned started practicing in my basement. You know, they would come over, hang out for an hour or so, then go downstairs and play. I would usually, for for the first couple of years, I would not participate, stay upstairs, um, you know, do do my stuff around the house, do whatever I needed to do. I asked Sarah how she then got started playing in the band. You know, like I did one session with them in February of 2020. Then the pandemic happened. And then there was no sunburned. There was no practice. There was no playing. And then we started, they started playing again. They started coming to the house again. And, um, and then I started sort of like sneaking down and dipping my toe in. <laughs> they were like, come, you should play down. What are you doing? Come downstairs. And, and I was like, you know, they welcomed me in and it was actually cool. And it sounded good sometimes. And the show in Durham, the Duke show, the three lobed fest was the first show I ever played with them. Um, so that was a little, (laughs) and that was a weird and kind of intense show where the band was closing out the second night of a big festival. And when I heard her say that that was her first show, it kind of blew my mind because I just assumed Sarah had been playing in the band for a while. She looked just so comfortable. Yeah. That was the first show that I played with them. Sarah mentioned the pandemic, and I feel like this story wouldn't be complete if we didn't at least acknowledge that it had happened. So I asked John Maloney how or if the circumstances and restrictions of the last couple of years impacted the band, both in micro and on their larger story. We ended up just playing outside in, in my backyard. It's below the house in the back, and the back is it goes downhill, so... And live on sort of a busy street so out front it's, it's kind of loud and nobody can hear anything so we just you know just like let's try playing outside and uh you know we can wear masks and, and get, out, get outside and, and and it really took off everybody was really into the idea and then and, and everything was closed down so we had nothing else to do so we just ended up playing a lot but it, it was a very uh fruitful period for us like mentally physically uh, just being all together and not you know we're kind of in a bubble you know we didn't lose any momentum i think we just became closer and um way more dialed in as a unit Allison, that basically wraps up the chronological story of the band. I know you've got a bunch of questions that I think we can start to explore over the next couple episodes. I'm wondering if there are any more like band history things that you're still curious about that we can wrap up in this episode. So even though the Sunburn membership policy is like pretty porous, yeah. I understand that they have they've still had a lot of like semi-formal kind of collaborations with Mm -hmm. other bands where it hasn't just been like somebody sitting in with sunburn or whatever um what what have those kind of looked like over the years yeah yeah i think that's there's a lot there Mm -hmm. uh there's a lot and there's because there's a few collaborative albums there's different people that kind of come in and out of the band's orbit Mm -hmm. heard a lot about that so let me put something together here for that and see if that answers those questions all right okay There were a handful of vaguely similar freeform bands that seemed to independently spring up in the late 90s and early 2000s. In particular, there was Jackie O Motherfucker, Viper Cathedral Orchestra, and the No Neck Blues Band. Tom from Jackie O brought the Viper Cathedral folks by the Charlestown Loft during a U.S. tour, and we heard how that relationship then blossomed with Sunburn in our last episode. I don't think we have time to fully deal with the relationship Sunburn had with No Neck. And really, I think understanding how all these bands relate and related to one another is an entire other podcast. But just to make sure it's clear, 
Here's a moment where Rob Thomas described how Kristen Anderson first introduced him to Keith Connolly of the No Neck Blues Band, followed by some back and forth with Rob and John Maloney about the connections between the two bands. With Kristen, Kristen's like, oh, you're going to meet this guy, Keith. He's going to come and help us. We can all work on printing the albums for this band together. And right when I saw it, it was another thing. Similar to when I met Maloney, we looked at each other. We both had 40s. <laughs> both had 40s of malt liquor. And we, we knew somehow there was a, a very sympathetic connection. And we immediately took LSD. Right, right after meeting you, let's, let's drop acid. We said, spent the whole night talking, and uh, it was pretty intense and interesting. But that was shortly after meeting Keith for the first time. Now, you got can't underestimate the uh, significance and the influence of the No Neck Blues Band on the project because that was a very eye opening thing. Yeah, and ear and, and mind opening. It's kind of mutually beneficial, I thought. In a way, I don't know how they feel about it. But yeah, I, I, would, I don't know if they would paint it that way, but for us, it was... I feel like we definitely... when We, we played a lot of shows together, and we would uh, inspire each other, whether or not anyone would acknowledge it or not. But sometimes they'd blow us off the fucking map. Oh, yeah. Other nights, we had our, you know, we had our events, too. Yeah. There's one other musician that they talked about that I found really interesting because I think it shed some light on what was important to these guys and how they operated. It's kind of a judge a band by the company they keep sort of thing. Michael Hurley is a folk singer with roots in the Greenwich folk scene in the 60s and 70s. I see him called outsider folk, but he had records on folkways in the 60s and a couple on rounder in the 70s. And his discography is huge. I think he might get that label simply because he never cashed in as a boring nostalgia act he's been a constant and uncompromising presence who is comfortable playing with younger musicians making different kinds of music here's rob thomas and john maloney talking about times that hurley lived with them in the charlestown loft Hurley was living there for a while yeah michael hurley lived with us for a couple of periods a couple of a couple of times for about two or three months at a time yeah, like Hurley would be like part of the Flophouse vibes. Yeah, yeah Hurley. How did Hurley come into the scene? Like, well, or, we like, had a friend, this guy Frank Vandenels, and he's a Dutch guy who's been living here for years and years. And Frank is old friends with Hurley, and we had a party in '98. It was just a sunburn party, I think. And Frank showed up and he brought Hurley with him, and we're like, "Wow, Jesus Christ, Michael Hurley's here!" Okay, and so I said to him, "I said, hey, Michael, you know, if you if you want to play, you're more than welcome, but no pressure." He said, "Okay, well, maybe I will," and uh, he did. It was great. And then he spent the night in his van outside. I was like, "You can crash here if you was like, oh no." And he spent the night in his van, and then the next, the next, maybe he spent two nights in his van, and then he was kind of like a stray stray pet or something yeah. slowly felt more comfortable came into the house then he stayed with us for about three months and then that happened again about two years later he came by and stayed for three months so it was pretty fascinating to live with him and he would just he would just play music all day long so I'd get to yeah. sit there and watch him and made a big impression he took a liking to us for some, yeah, some reason he, yeah he could he could feel feel at ease yeah <laughs> yeah he's like yeah it's cut from the same yeah we're all from the same dna strain or something yeah yeah another artist the poet ira cohen came up in a couple of my conversations this is michael k talking about learning he was going to be playing a bill with cohen show we're playing i'm researching we're playing the um Contemporary Arts Museum in Dundee, Scotland, for a three-day the timid kill your timid notion. It was a three-day festival. Acid Mother's Temple, and then it's Ira Cohen is going to be there. And I had I was deeply obsessed with Ira Cohen and had been for about two years uh, through my interest in William Burroughs, Brian Geisen, and. Um, you know, an interest in Angus McLeese, but that didn't like fully, that was happening at the same time because the releases were coming out. So you could hear Angus's music, but then through my interest in Ira, I found those publications that they made in Kathmandu. All right, so that was amazing for me. I'm on my first tour in this psychedelic band and I'm going to perform at a festival with my hero as his peer in a way. And that's when Ira and I finally met. Just as an example of how being in this band intersects with 
everyone's lives and shifts and changes it. And also to give an example of, of how different members followed different paths and, and, and maybe pulled away from playing in the band for periods of time. Here's a way that Michael's connection with Ira Cohen ended up extending beyond Sunburn and into part of his personal life. His assistant, that was 2002. His assistant was a, a woman that I became involved with in 2007 and then moved to New York City to be with her for eight years. Um, but um, Mark Orleans ruined my life with that band Juno, I'm telling you. I, I blame my... <laughs> no. And there's that dry sunburn wit. Cohen also came up with Rob and John. Here they share their thoughts about their connection with Cohen and other artists. That festival in Scotland that we're talking about, um, it was in Dundee. Was, it two, was that 2003, I think? Yeah. And that, that, that was one where we met Ira Cohen there. He hit it off with us immediately. We made, we made him comfortable just by being like uncouth Americans or something. He realized he could relax. Well, that's with the Boston accents. Yeah, 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 yeah. Old, you know, kind of old school. Northeast. Yeah. He's got like the Brooklyn. He's a Brooklyn dude. And uh, but yeah, we just made him comfortable. He liked us. We 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 went on to uh, do a few performances with him in following years, where he would read poetry. And then of course we scored his film several times live, The Invasion of Thunderbolt Pagoda. Yeah, a couple times with him. Yeah, with reading. him reading too. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, I, that's also where we met Christoph Heeman. I don't know if you know his stuff. He's he had a, a kind of an, a surrealistic industrial band in the eighties called HNAS, Hirschnichtoff Sofa. And I've, yeah. sta- I've stayed friends with him for years, and I, I, I still talk to him a lot. And uh, yeah, so you never know where these friendships will emerge. Sunburner has a handful of albums that are credited as collaborations, but there's one in particular where the, even the band name was modified. The Sunburn Circle album was a collaborative recording between Sunburn Hand of the Man and the Finnish experimental band Circle. Here are John Maloney, Rob Thomas, and Phil Franklin talking about that collaboration. We met them at the Arthur Fest. Oh, yeah, I guess that's yeah, true. No, huh? Arthur Magazine. Okay. Yeah, that's where we first met them. And then we, we played Flint, Finland a few times. And they invited us to do a couple of shows with them and also to collaborate with them. And I mean, that's a great talking about, you know, playing like, oh, we knew we were going to make this record or we were going to do this recording with them. I don't, I don't think we knew it was going to be a record. It seemed like it was going to be really special and really cool. But my feeling at the time, the way I felt, I was pretty nonchalant about it. You know, I'd pick up a trumpet and play a little trumpet or I might get on the mic and say something. Like, I wasn't really like in a serious frame of mind on that show, like playing that recording. But then I hear the recording and I hear, you know, you're with 12 other people that are playing and it it's great, you know. I, I don't even know what I did on that. You know? I asked Phil if they had done any jamming or practicing with the band in advance of this recording session. No, I mean, I, they probably had done a sound check and then we did a sound check or vice versa and then everything was on stage and we just, I don't even know how that was recorded, if it was recorded by them or maybe by both of us, you know? So we record the one album that we did in collaboration was recorded at the club prior to the show in Red Helsinki. Yeah, it's just a jam. I don't know. It's a tempera. Tempera. Yeah, yeah it's a just a board recording from mm-hmm. a jam. I wish it went. I wish we wish we played for three days straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Sunbird Circle is wild, and to think it resulted in just setting up and jamming is kind of mind blowing. I also like that last bit from John. It says so much about him because what I hear is not regret about what was produced, but an example of his constant desire to just jam with people that he feels connected to. Fortet is a well-known English electronic musician who has collaborated with a range of artists, including the jazz drummer Steve Reed, the Syrian Dabki singer Omar Suleiman, and Radiohead's Tom York, and Sunburn Hand of the Man. I was really curious how they first got connected with Kieran Hebden, who is Fortet. And then, yeah, um, Kieran, Kieran got involved yeah. and produced two albums for us, which was interesting because I, I, that was something, I mean, any of these other people, you could say that there's a, 
more of an overt connection or something. But Kieran's music is definitely different. But he approached us. I don't even know how he heard us, but he's a big fan of um, jazz improvisation in particular. Did a tour? Was that 2004 as well? Yeah, the they, first tour with him. Somebody from his from yes, he emailed us or some. I think he emailed us and asked us if we would be interested in opening um, an East Coast tour for him. And and I got the email and I brought it to the to the gang and then everybody's. Uh, I don't think I think Rob's the only person who knew who Fortet was. Yeah, we did a little. We did some uh, research, and we yeah, we said yeah, let's do it. And that, that that was a really good tour. I asked how the albums were made. If they were pulled from live performances or no, uh, no, he brought us into a studio in London before oh, yeah. we did a show in, the, in 2006, in just an afternoon. He was like the conductor at the time. He was doing these albums with Steve Reed, the jazz drummer, mm-hmm. and. Um, so we brought us in, and they were just making up music on the spot in the studio. So we brought us to the same studio. He says, I think this could work good for you guys to have me and, and the engineer uh, sort of lead you guys or conduct you guys. And then he'll take all the music and mix it. I, we never even heard multitracks, never even heard roughs on anything. No. He just handed on the, us On the first album, album Fire Escape, yeah. Yeah, Fire Escape. And then... That recording session resulted in the Fire Escape record. That album was met with a good deal of critical acclaim. I like that record, but I really love the second album that they did with Hebden, partly because it's a perfect example of Sunburn being what they want to be, rather than what critics or the general public might feel entitled to hearing. That was a really special album that fell through the cracks because it happened. It came out just at a time when... The uh, the full fledged backlash to New Weird America, Freak Folk, where people were, you know, the whatever the, the vibe, the, the, the people were sick of that thing. It had it had run its course, and but I think it's an incredibly successful collaboration because it is one of those things where because Kieran plays on that one, he didn't play on the first one. Well, no, he does. He played piano on the first one. That's true. But anyway, he, he was a little more hands-on musically in the second one called A. And uh, I just, it's, it's you couldn't, the first one sounds like a sunburned record in hi-fi. But the second one, you can't tell, it, you could give a, a blindfold test to someone who really likes sunburned or a huge Fortet fan. And I think that in both cases, nobody would guess either artist is involved. It's like its own thing. And that's the one with the Pettibone cover. There's a lot of copies made, but no, no one has bought it. But I, I think it's a music, it's an album that people might discover in the future because it really doesn't sound. It's, it's interesting. It has a, it's its own vibe. Parts of it sound yeah. more like an Incus record or something. It's like pure abstract improvisation, and then there's some electronic stuff. But it's it's really a weird album. So those are a bunch of their collaborations. Um, gotcha. Anything in there? Anything else that we should cover in this episode? Um, well, yes. Yeah, so you mentioned Raymond Pettibone, yeah. which I think most listeners, if they don't know that name, they would definitely recognize like the Black Flag bars and yeah. a lot of his like graphic design work. Um, you know, I think especially for like Sonic Youth and other yeah. other like pretty major bands. Um, what were his, some of the other kind of like visual elements or like artistry that was really important to them. Yeah. Sunbird's cover art is pretty wild and we can cover some of that in the next segment, but this also just brings up the band's cottage industry of putting records out. We heard how John Maloney started the Manhand label just to get merch together. So they had stuff to sell, but it snowballed from there between 2007 and 2008 Manhand released more than 50 albums and by the time this podcast comes out, they will be at or over 200 releases. But we aren't talking about the typical record label sends stuff off to the plant and then just like distributes something that someone else manufactured. Nearly all of these releases were handmade. 
sometimes in limited runs of 50 to 100, but they're handmade little works of art that contain burned CDRs with the music. And it was material that was easily available because they had just been recording everything everything and there wasn't any kind of like song 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 yeah. it was like yep it's, okay yeah and it, and it's not just john so that's a process that john was doing and ron schneiderman was part taking a part in and michael k was helping with i mean i know other people but like all these guys are working on like putting these releases together and and getting them out but yeah that's another kind of piece to this story that's kind of bubbling constantly along there yeah. uh this kind of reminds me of like the Grateful Dead had their like dicks picks, which it was yeah, their like archivist yeah. picking, like picking the best of the jams. Yeah. I don't know, out of yeah. the vault. And it sounds like they, they were their own like dicks picks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. One of their earliest releases is called Piff's Clicks, which is, you know, a nod to that. And it's named after the taper that put that release together, who's named Cliff. So, you know, there's the band's humor right there. Like, gotcha. I think they said that the weekend at Bernie's, B U R N Bernie's series, <laughs> is 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 sort of the, the like the influenced by the Dick's Picks kind of thing. Also, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there's weekend so just really there's good. just there's just so much stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, what else? This will be our last segment of this episode. So, what else do I need to cover? And so, this is a band where even if it wasn't necessarily a cover designed by somebody who was actually in the band, like visual artistry is still something that is like a really important mm-hmm. language to yeah. everybody. And, you know, I've heard about different projects they've had over the years of like rare editions or, yeah. you know, they'll spend time like hand assembling or decorating or putting covers together yeah, um yeah what about this is like a, an important element for this band because like that's something else that takes up time and money and effort and yeah. it's you know it's clearly something that's a priority for them but why <laughs> yeah yeah i think the, those two questions go really well together and mm-hmm. and so I, I can totally answer that in this next segment so okay here we go cool Thinking back to that headdress record, we know this is a band that really puts work into the packaging of their releases. I asked Rob Thomas and John Maloney to talk with me about some of their album art and the people who made it. Yeah, but we've been blessed, you know, with, uh, with there's been some incredible uh, visual artists, like Phil, Phil Franklin is an amazing artist. He, <laughs> he did some, some uh, intense cover art for us on several, across several releases. There's a guy... Uh, a, a friend of ours, a British friend named John Godbert, who's an incredible visual artist, and his job is uh, making archaeological drawings for the British government. But he did the first album cover for The Fall, Live at the Witch Trials. He did uh, a couple of things for us, and I, from Boredoms, did the cover for um, Fire Escape, and uh, yeah. you, know, you know, we got a Pettibone. Yeah, Pettibone <laughs> yeah. cover. That's true. One of the for extended a. piece records, yeah. the A record. I wanted to know how they made these connections. Hmm. Well, Pettibone thing came through Thurston. Thurston knows Pettibone. Um, I believe the Norwegian label that released Fire Escape got in touch with I and asked him if he would do it. And that's, okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how that worked out. Yeah, that worked out. John, John, we just asked. He's friend. He's a good friend of ours. I'm forgetting some yeah, other. John Yeager. We heard about John Yeagle in the last episode. He's the guy that danced on stage with the band at the show they opened for Gang Gang Dance and Animal Collective. Oh, John Yeagle, yeah. Well, John Yeagle had, uh, the guy who joined us on stage that night, he had been a, he was a painter, but he had done some graphic design for Atlantic Records in the 60s, so he did the cover for um, Olay by Coltrane and um, Ornette, the, just the album Ornette with the exclamation point, Soul Finger by the Marquis, and um, his son is Jason Yeagle, who did like, uh, went on to do a lot of graphic design for MF Doom and stuff like that. Uh, I asked if they've worked with any artists on their recent releases. JC from the Strapping Field Hands and uh, longtime manager of the Philadelphia Record Exchange. I didn't. I knew him for a long time and didn't realize he did graphic design. And, and then he, he 
I guess he had taken like a 25 or 30 year sabbatical from drawing and just started up again. He, he did the covers for uh, um, Headless and then uh, Pick a Day to Die. Those are both by him. And he, he, he goes back to, I mean, he did the, the cover for the first, first or second flipper single this is by him, which I thought, I didn't realize. Yeah, I was like, what the fuck, JC did that? I was like, holy shit. Yeah, we've, we've been lucky. We've been, always had some interesting yeah. people designing. They started all of this talking about Phil Franklin. He's done a number of Sunburn's album covers. So he and I discussed some of the album art that he's done for Sunburn Hand of the Man. So, so Rare, Rarewood was something when I was working with uh, different woods and resin and gluing wood together and sanding it and embedding objects in the wood. And... Um, you know, it's it's just something I, I made. I, I realized later on that there's, um, it's just funny because I'm just working on a cover now for a title called Working Men's Dump and took a Grateful Dead uh, record and changed the, the cover a little bit and made it to another figure. And it has this whole Grateful Dead feel, but Rare Wood, I realized there's a Grateful Dead, I, I guess it's American Beauty, where it's sort of embedded in wood. And I, I didn't really think about it. You know, I mean, there are other records that have that wood look or, you know, uh, veneers of wood or whether it's they actually made an object and then took a photograph and then printed the cover, which is what Rare Wood was band like No Neck had, you know, a record that there was actually wood with a, a brand that they had branded the No Neck name into the wood. I'd love to do that for Sunbird is make an actual like wood box or something, you know, for uh, a cover. Th this cover I just did is just color Xerox and folded paper and spray paint. So each one is sort of an indiv individual artwork in itself and I made 120, so the addition's 100, and yeah, I'm going to drop that off to John in December. A lot of the Sunburn members came into the band with a background in visual art. Mark Orleans, undergrad degree was in painting. Conrad and Taylor both moved to Boston for art school. John and Rob both do visual art. I think that tells us something about this group of people. They are artists in the broadest sense of the word. And the music is just one mode of expression that's available to them. And it's not art as a commodified thing. It's more just part of how they exist. Here's an interesting story from John Maloney talking about something Ron Schneiderman would do while traveling on tour. And Ron would make future fuckers all the time. And there was there were just these uh, wooden daggers. It's, it's, I had it in my hand the other day while I was playing drums. Some Ron handed it to me. There it is on the floor there. You can probably see it oh, yeah. <laughs> under the kit. So he, he would make these, uh, he, Ron did a lot of whittling on tours. Whittling? Whittling, yeah. So yeah. We'd, be on, we'd be in the, the bus or you know, the, the, the van driving to one gig to another. He'd be whittling these sticks, down, like pieces of wood into daggers and making these, it says, it says future fucker on it. If you look at it closely on one of the edges. Yeah. Or it says fuck the future on it, something like that. And from time to time, Ron also builds time machines at their shows out of branches he picks up along the way. Again, just non-stop doing stuff. To close out this section, I want to go back to my conversation with Phil Franklin. His comments here, I think, really illustrate the band's aesthetic. I guess it's also, you know, it's, uh, it's an expense, even though it might take longer to actually do it by hand, it's it's less expensive than having it printed. Um, you know, a lot of the band members are visually inclined. Just working on, you know, artwork like that is, is a great way to hang out and listen to music. And, you know, it, these covers I just worked on, you know, took weeks to make because of the whole process of, spraying on the color and gluing it together and letting it sit overnight and you know i had to die cut each cover out of 
um, cardboard and, you know, you, you go, you go above board just cause it's fun to do. It's, there's really no other reason for it. <laughs> what else am I going to do? Count all my gold bullion? Okay, Allison, uh, does that seem to answer those questions, you think? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Great. Okay. So I think that's that's this is a lot for this episode. I think we should wrap up um, where we go next then, because I think at this point in time, like we we've heard the band's story mm-hmm. like this, like we want we, we get up to the point when they've moved out to Western Mass and they're, they're playing in the modern era. Mm-hmm. What are the other elements to the story that we still need to cover? So what do you where, where do you think we go from here? Um, I guess I would really love to know more about just like what has kept all of these people together over the years, especially yeah. because it seems like they've been, it's been a lot of different kind of ups and downs for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I would love to know more about just like what kind of intimacy they have or, yeah. you know, just, you know, why, why do they keep showing up in the same room together? Yeah. yeah. Uh, why do they keep picking up instruments together? Yeah. What is it? Totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a great place to go in the next episode. All right. So awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunbird Hand of the Man. If you check out the show notes, we've included a list of links to pictures and other things discussed in this episode. We also have a list of the songs used in the episode, with links so you can go hear them in their entirety. I'm Kelly Davis. I hosted and produced this episode. My special guest was Allison Hussey. Editorial support was provided by Chris Sims and Allison Hussey. Portions of this episode were recorded in the studios of WXDU in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more.